If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 554. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. And get great deals on new and forthcoming courses. Here it is, November 30th. It is Cyber... Well, I guess we had Cyber Monday yesterday, so now it's Giving Tuesday. But anyways, it's these last two days of November. And if you're listening to this show, November 30th, 2021... You want to buy McClanahan Academy. If you're on my email list, you've gotten the 30% coupon. It's the last time I'm ever going to offer it. I'll send out a bunch of emails. So if you're getting this, you're probably going to get some emails today if you're on the list. Make sure you check your spam folder. Whitelist my email address. That's how you get these emails. But you're going to get the emails and you're going to get the coupon. So click on the email when it comes from me and you can get that 30% off. It's the last time I'm ever going to use a 30% coupon again. So you're never going to see that. So if you want 30% at McClanahan Academy, here it is, November 30th, 2021. Get that. That deal expires at midnight Pacific tonight. You're going to want to get it because if you don't get it now, you won't get it again. So get that 30% coupon. McClanahan Academy courses make great gifts. They are never out of stock. You don't have to fight over that toy. It's great. Also, you can click on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way monthly or one-time donation, whatever you want. Keep the podcast free of charge. Click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and cool stuff. Go to amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. Get my books. They're a great gift as well. You can get that Brian McClanahan fan, something of mine. Of course, you can buy a book plate if you want it. brianmcclanahan.com under that support tab. You can get my autograph on the book. So lots of great ways to support the show. And as always, share the podcast around on social media. Go out uh, and... Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Make sure you subscribe to it. Make sure you rate it. And make sure you leave a review. That's how we get more people thinking locally and acting locally. All right. All that said, let's talk about the topic of the day. Yesterday, we had a great discussion of Victor Davis Hanson and his ridiculous piece at American Greatness. We're going to talk about a good article today. And this is at lawliberty.org. A great website, Law and Liberty. It's the Liberty Fund. They do great academic conferences and Spirited discussion. I mean, they have people in these conferences that don't agree on things. Very spirited discussion. But uh, they uh, they run really good material. Aaron Coleman, who I like a lot, writes for them. Uh, As does John Grove, I believe, is one of the the, uh, editors, I think, at Law Liberty. But uh, John Grove wrote a really good book on John C. Calhoun, Calhoun and Republicanism. I can't remember the exact title, but um, it's a very good book. And he's written a nice piece here about Mel Bradford. And we're going to talk about this. This this actually led me to talk about a couple of other things this week. So this piece was a bridge to the last two two podcasts. And I, I want to focus on 
uh, that part of it at the end of this. Um, well, when we get there, right? In another couple of podcasts. But this piece really got me thinking about some things. So it's good. When, when I can read something, and it's not just, oh, this is, this is ridiculous, this is, this is just trivial, this is, this is dribble, this is, this is a false dichotomy, straw man, whatever. When I read something, I'm like, wow, that really made me think about some things. This did. And anytime you read Mel Bradford, you're going to do that. And that's exactly how he begins his piece. He was rereading Mel Bradford, and Mel Bradford said something, and he thought, wow, profound. You have that. If you don't read Mel Bradford, and there's so many good Mel Bradford books, collections of essays, essentially is what they are, but you're missing out, right? Same thing with Richard Weaver. These are the two of the big names of the mid-20th century into late-20th century Southern thought. Bradford died in 1994, I believe, somewhere around there. Uh, Weaver died in the 1960s. But uh, certainly you have this, um, this really interesting collection of thinkers here in, this, in the middle of the 20th century. And Bradford, there would be no Straussian, Paleocon, Neocon, Paleocon debate without Mel Bradford. I mean, in terms of being brought out to the fore. Mel Bradford and Harry Jaffa, uh, really back in the 1970s, they got into it. The dust-up there was over Jaffa writing an essay, Equality as Conservative. And Bradford said, this is ridiculous. It's not. You can't ever have it be that way. So I say that, all that to say that this piece essentially starts with Mel Bradford. And uh, Grove says, Mel Bradford's Masterful Original Intentions, which is a great book, by the way. It's um, I was assigned this book as an undergraduate on the Constitution. Hard to get through. And I, the professor that signed it, he still teaches. He even said, well, I don't know if y'all can really understand this. And as an undergraduate, no, I, I didn't understand it much. Uh, it was It was tough to get through. So if you're not in the literature, and you don't have a, a pretty strong background on the Constitution, it is a hard book to get through. But it is so good. It's so good. He says, Mel Bradford's Masterful Original Intentions contains an almost throwaway line that caught my attention upon a recent rereading. The phrase has come to mind again and again ever since. It occurs to me that it contains a once commonplace conservative truth that has now been obscured by the ongoing debate over the post-liberal right. Speaking of the Rhode Island Ratification Convention, Bradford notes that one delegate, at least, was concerned about the potential insertion in the Constitution of a general guarantee of religious freedom. Quote, It will be dangerous to call upon the new general government for a guarantee of religious freedom in the states, Henry Merchant warned, for the power to guarantee turns quickly into a power to control. Now, think about what's going on here, first of all. Let me just stop and, th and talk about the Constitution for a minute. Rhode Island, Rhode Island, and every other New England state had, well, Rhode Island, a little different. They didn't have a state-established church, but other states did. But what they did not want was the central authority to have the power, right, to guarantee religious freedom. So what does that actually mean? What they didn't want was essentially what we call incorporation today. There was a proposal for an incorporation amendment. James Madison proposed it. It was rejected. Why was it rejected? 
because the states already had their own constitutions, their own declarations of rights. They didn't need the Bill of Rights applying to the states. They already had them. This is a question that's been asked of me, and maybe I'll do a, a show on this. There was a long, somebody wrote me a long email about this, and I, I should I should answer this question in a in a in a rejoinder on a podcast, and I'll do that sometime before the end of the year. Well, you know, if we have this situation where we don't have the Bill of Rights being guaranteed, and then the states don't have to follow it, don't we have essentially loss of liberty in America, loss of rights? No, you don't, because we have the state constitutions. I can do a whole podcast on that. And of course, if you take my American Constitutions class at McClanahan Academy, I get into this, right? Original, my originalist papers, I get into this. Grove continues, Merchant was concerned that should a general guarantee of religious freedom be added to the Constitution, it may be understood to expand Congress's ability to meddle, ostensibly in defense of a moral right, in an area that the Constitution had left to the states, 100% accurate. Merchant was correct. He was correct at the time. And he's still correct today. This is why the founding generation opposed an incorporation amendment. The principle Bradford identified, though, must be used as a maxim that encapsulates traditional conservative skepticism of both political abstractions and concentrated government power. As we turn to an efficient and uh, omnicompetent government to guarantee the valuable things of life, we often hand over the authority to control by redefining, co-opting, and instrumentalizing those things. So this is interesting, right? Because you do have a strain of conservatism that does want to enforce its own morality on the rest of America. This is what I've said. Why are Americans so angry? Because we have one-size, top-down government, one-size-fits-all, top-down government, run by progressive sections of both groups. This is why the left gets angry. This is why the right gets angry. This is what happens. And it's about power. It's always about power. And people feel comfortable. Well, you know, if I have the power and I make it this way, I'm going to feel safe and secure that my worldview is being enforced on people that I don't like. And you have that, right? The right wants to own the libs. And there's, there is something to it, right? Who doesn't want to see them twist it into them a little bit harder? Give them a little jab to the gut because they do it to us all the time. The key is trying to get the left to understand that when you give a jab to the gut of the right, it's going to come back at you. You better be willing to duck. And if you can't duck, which you won't be able to all the time, you're going to get punched in the face too. And it's going to be hard. on. So why don't we just stop swinging, right? Where can you stop swinging? Well, you decentralize. You actually have an original federal republic. You have the federal republic as designed, which would allow Rhode Island to be Rhode Island and allow Virginia to be Virginia and Massachusetts to be... See, Rhode Island was worried about Massachusetts. They're always worried about Massachusetts. Everybody's been worried about Massachusetts and Connecticut because they're the real cancer in America. Massachusetts and Connecticut are the cancer. We talked about this yesterday with Hanson. They've always been the cancer. It's not been the South. It's been Massachusetts and Connecticut that have long been the cancer of America. It's easy to see this principle at work when the guarantees are being enforced by the left. With the incorporation of the Bill of Rights in the 20th century, the religion clause of the First Amendment 
were indeed transformed into what Merchant feared, a broad, generic use of religious liberty. In theory, this is not a bad thing. That guarantee, however, quickly became a power through the ability to interpret and define those rights, to control schools, student groups, local governments, and even individuals who might tacitly pressure their peers to engage in religious activity. And the religion clauses are far from an outlier. Under the regime of judicial supremacy, if we look at, to the court as the ultimate guarantor of all species of rights, the federal government has merely intruded more and more into our personal and communal lives. Even the power to guarantee the most procedural of rights imaginable, the right to due process of law, has morphed into the power to control almost any aspect of American society. It grants nothing less than the power to define human dignity and enforce conformity to its demands. Now, it depends on what this due process of law means. Is it substantive due process or procedural due process? Now, this is where Grove doesn't get into that. But what we've done is accepted a substantive due process position, which was outlined by Dred Scott, not by the founding generation. In fact, you could argue the founding generation was only concerned about due process in terms of procedural due process. Did you have access to the courts? Did you get all the, all the proper processes before you were denied your life, liberty, or property? Was there, a, was there an infringement upon your due process rights, meaning you didn't get a jury trial, you didn't get a, the proper trial, right? And all states protected these things in criminal and civil cases. So as long as you follow all the processes, you could be denied all these things, your life, or liberty, or property. Didn't mean you didn't have them, but you could be denied them if you were followed due process. Right? So, uh, if you were a citizen, this is the other case, right? So you had to be a citizen. If you weren't a citizen, well, then you didn't get these things. But what we've done is saying, well, government can't even pass laws that would do these things, denying your life, liberty, or property. That's, that's substantive due process, and it's different. Whole different thing, whole different animal. Christopher Caldwell has recently advanced the controversial but I think reasonable thesis that the Civil Rights Act's guarantees of social equality wound up giving the federal government the power to control every corner of American life, including personal speech and thought through concepts like hostile work environments, disparate impacts, and affirmative action programs. I'm going to talk about that Caldwell book this week. This is the part where I thought, man, that, I haven't talked about the Caldwell book. Let me do a podcast on that. But I'm going to do it in a way that goes back to something that I wrote in 2012, because you know what all Caldwell is doing is rehashing arguments that are already made against the Civil Rights Acts, right? Back in, when, they were, when they were passed. At a more conceptual level, one might say that conservatives have slowly and unevenly been leering, le I'm sorry, learning the lesson that conceiving of government merely as a guarantee of dogmatic pre-political rights of an abstract or of abstract equality does not lead in a productive direction. Such mandates can easily and oftentimes reasonably be transformed into a positive power to limit liberty and reshape society all the time. Right? This is where I've said if you're playing the left's game, which is what he's exactly describing here, conservatives playing the game of the left on their field by their rules, guess what's going to happen? You're going to lose because the left is going to win that. So what Grove essentially is saying here is we don't want to do that. We shouldn't be doing that anymore. Don't do that. Don't play their game. Now, 
Law and Liberty uh, and John Grove is much more measured in his condemnation of these things than I get at times, right? This is why uh, people get angry with me because I use, I, I call people things that uh, you know, Grove is not doing here. Uh, one of the things is stupid, but uh, Grove is, is being more measured. But, I, I mean, look, uh, the fact is, you know, what Victor Davis Hanson was writing yesterday, what I talked about, was stupid. And it needs to be called that. Now, Grove's piece is excellent. It's excellent. He's bringing some things out in a way that you know, people might read. Alan Gelzo reads Law and Liberty. So, for example, but I mean, these are the, these are the neoconservatives. He's talking about the neoconservatives. Mel Bradford is not a neoconservative. He's talking about the neoconservatives, the Straussians. He's saying in that paragraph, these are the people. They're learning the lesson. I don't know how well, but they're supposedly learning it. Today's post-liberal or common good conservatives, there are a number of such strands pushing a form of conservatism comfortable using power, identify some of the problems that arose from the vision of government as a guarantor. But they ascribe them simply to liberalism, usually very vaguely or simplistically defined. The idea of limited government, they often claim, comes from a misguided individualism that ends up putting government to use for the wrong reasons, namely the promotion of individual choice and autonomy. Get over atomistic liberal theory and you and you can stop worrying and learn to love government. Now, this is where he's getting right there. He's getting into the populists. It's kind of strain like uh, you know, people that are embracing uh, uh, the use of government power for certain things. right? Uh, and not just that, also the progressives on the right. I mean, the neocons will do this stuff too. So this new conservatism would have government guarantee even more things. Family income, social media fairness, economic production, the policies of private businesses, the morals of an increasingly decadent society, even for a few piety. The problem, we are told, is just a matter of misguided priorities. Shouldn't the law and the state support and guarantee the vital social elements of a good human life? Now, I'll stop here and say this. I think you can push for these things at the state and local level, certainly. State and local level, if that's what you want, but not at the federal level. We have to be careful about the power of the center compared to the power of the power of the created compared to the power of the creators, right? We have to be careful about those things because uh, the states always had leeway in these areas. Now he's arguing more abstractly here that we, maybe we shouldn't do that. But I would say that if you want to push these things, if you're one of those conservatives, and, I, and look, there's there's arguments to be made for these things. If you want to push that, you got to do it at the state and local level, not at the federal level, because the federal level has too many discordant things. Maybe even at the state level, too. When you've got states that are the size of the United States were in 1790, you've got California that's way beyond that. You've got Texas way beyond that. And I'm talking about population. That's too big, right? These things need to be de decentralized even more. While it's often put in terms of support for and reinforcement of beneficial and virtuous social habits, the post-liberal vision quickly gives way to control. After all, peaceful political order in which people are in associations have the freedom to build up civil society does not guarantee that virtue will take root. People can have the freedom to pursue human goods and yet turn their backs on them. Rulers then must have the authority not just to provide an environment that allows for human flourishing, but to define the good life, incentivize certain behaviors, and punish those whose choices would undermine it. 
The distinction between skeptical conservatism and this new breed has nothing to do with atomistic enlightenment liberal theory, as it's so often suggested. It is about the denial of truth. It is rather about the nature of power and the extent to which human goods can reliably be secured by it. Public policies designed to guarantee robust conceptions of the common good, of course, can easily be disfigured, just as the original understanding of certain rights has been. Public education is perhaps the clearest example. What could be more laudable and more in keeping with the vision of a common good-centered conservatism than a guarantee that all children receive a quality education? That guarantee, once made, quickly became the power to control curriculum, moral content, and ultimately the minds of the next generation. As is to be expected, many public schools became indoctrination centers, and where the ideology is challenged, they become partisan battlefields. Neither should be acceptable to anyone who genuinely values education. Again, I, I agree with all this. Though, when, you're, when the schools reflect the community, that's fine. What we don't need is one-size-fits-all from the center. This is where, I, I mean, you have, to, you have to talk about the Federal Republic. And Bradford would. I mean, what he's getting into in Original Intentions is the fact that we have a Federal Republic. We don't have a one-size-fits-all government. And so there's no American nationalism, in other words, that doesn't exist. The American nation is a fabrication. We have a Federal Republic. Michael Oakeshott's Bradford's Muse and Original Intentions briefly introduced the proposition that, quote, the pursuit of perfection is far too important to be handed over to the control and direction of a set of people who by blood, force, or election have acquired the right to call themselves governors. With just such a disposition, the power-skeptical conservative tradition recognizes that attempting to orient politics toward the good in a comprehensive sense may very well endanger the good. Given what we know about the politics of mass democracy to be, entrenched bureaucrats, special interest favoritism, ambiguous, I'm sorry, ambitious demagogues, media posturing, and an often ignorant, impressionable, and fickle electorate, is it a trustworthy safeguard for the most valuable things in life? Okay, again, we have to we have to create uh, uh, the proper framework here. At the center, no. For the general government, no. But we could look at these things at the state and local level. We really should be talking about more and more decentralization in America. By the way, if you're getting this on the 30th and you want to talk about these things with someone who's really good on this, uh, the Abbeville Institute is hosting a Zoom webinar tomorrow night, December 1st, 2021, with Don Livingston. And we're talking about these very things. I'll be on with Don and we talk about federalism. We'll talk about republicanism. In fact, the, the title of this talk is, Is Republicanism Dead? But we're going to get into size and scale. Maybe we need more of this decentralization. Maybe the state is too big. So for every uh, potential new horizon of power, for every new government guarantee, we might ask, is this an area of life I am comfortable being controlled, defined, and used by the forces of mass politics? Whatever my dreams for a nation of uniformity, intelligent, and patriotic school children, is the education of my own kids an area I am comfortable being controlled for by the political process. No matter how important strong families may be, do I think that a comprehensive federal family policy won't be used primarily to buy votes and wind up being at best a perpetual tug-of-war over what family patterns to subsidize? Whatever my opinion about the Ford Foundation's pernicious social influence, do I expect that partisan warfare over non-profit assets would strengthen civil society? Again, he's talking about centralized power, but we could talk about these things at the local.
at the local. And I think he would be he would, he would be receptive to that. John Grove, I think, would be receptive to that. It's not saying he doesn't believe in those things. He's just talking about centralization now. Do we want to have a national policy on any of these things? To this, the post-liberal typical responds, there's no way around it. The very nature of politics is an unlimited battle between visions of the good, one which must win out and shape society after its own image. And here we have the real distinction between traditional power-skeptical conservatism and the new form. Traditionally, conservatives have held out the possibility of a restrained politics, one that, though not indifferent to human goods, does not pursue a comprehensive vision. It is a politics that seeks only, quote, a tolerably ordered, just, and free society in which some evils, maladjustments, and suffering will continue to lurk. Accordingly, it has stressed the importance of constitutional self-government and the particular virtues that sustain it, of institutional and procedural restraints on rulers that take certain pre precious possessions out of the purview and that require a genuine consensus before putting power into action. Lest one thinks such procedural limits cannot be effective, consider what legislative monstrosities we have thus far been spared over the past year by the institutional forms of even our battered, twisted, and gutted old constitution. And this is at a time when citizen and politician alike are habituated not to defend and preserve limits, but to attack them. And I mean, he's right about this. But now, at the state and local level, this is where real federalism comes into play. If we had a real federal republic, these things would all be questions at the state level. California, again, could be California. Massachusetts could be Massachusetts. Alabama could be Alabama. Texas could be Texas. But even there, we could talk about decentralizing a little bit. Everything morphed into centralized power. Note well the distinction between skeptical conservatism and this new breed that has, has nothing to do with atomistic, enlightened liberal theory, as is often suggested. It is not about the denial of truth. It is not about an entirely neutral public square. It is not about a lack of political imagination. It is not about an emaciated conception of human life that sees no goods worth fighting for. It is simply about the nature of power and the extent to which human goods can reliably be secured by it. It is about whether one shares what Russell Kirk called the characteristic of the radical, that he thinks of power as a force for good so long as the power falls into his hands. Indeed, some versions of the post-liberal position seem to hold that social order is a malleable clay in the hands of a potter. Good order simply will not arise if it is not imposed by state power, a belief that ironically mirrors some extreme Enlightenment theories. Again, it's Hobbesian, right? It's Hobbesian. This is what we're talking about. It's Hobbesian there. But the, the thing is, um, central versus state, I agree with Kirk. Uh, but I've mentioned this before. American history is all about power, right? The whole sectional conflict was about power. And it was all because of the spoils of the center. Because of the center. If you limit the power of the center, this is where John C. Calhoun said in 1837, look, he said in the positive good speech, very, and again, 26 speeches that change America, it's in there, that speech, and I talk about it, but I'll say this. He said in that speech, I believe Congress has the power to abolish slavery because if they have the power to pass the force bill, they have the power to abolish slavery. They can do anything they want because there's no check on their power. So if this is the case, then we should abolish slavery right now if it's, if it's an evil. But nobody's willing to do that, is his point. Nobody wanted to do it. He said they have the power to do all these things. What are we talking about here? Because Congress had already usurped that power. Once they've gone one step, they're going to go two steps and three steps and ten steps and a hundred steps until we get to where we are now that there's no limits on their power. 
It's all about the spoils. And there's a lot of money going to those coffers, and they want control of that money. The skeptical conservative can pursue substantive common, common goods, excuse me, but only through restrictive constitutional forms that ensure some degree of social consensus surrounding them. Likewise, without embracing any absolute moral teachings on individual autonomy, the skeptical conservative can articulate rights as concrete, agreed upon rules that, barring John Courtney Murray's phrase, serve as articles of peace rather than weapons of war. In doing so, we also preserve one of the most delicate of common human goods, society itself. Like everyone, conservatives are easily lured by promises to make our dreams come true if we only get rid of limits. Against this temptation, we can use a pithy maxim that reminds us that limits on power preserve the freedom to live, act locally, and build up civil society in pursuit of what is truly good and valuable, safeguarding our most precious possessions against the enthusiasts of power and control who, whatever their claim to the contrary, can never guarantee the good society. That last paragraph is, is perfect, right? I mean, act local. You're thinking locally and acting locally, right? This is what you're doing. So when you have this restraint on power it allows these things to happen restraint on power more importantly from the center whatever that center may be that's important so you're reflecting community values and other things this is a great essay i really like it i told uh john grove that i was going to review it or i did review it excuse me and um th this is this is good um so Read it. Go to Law and Liberty. Read their material. Read John Grove. Get his book on Calhoun. It's very good. And, um, you know, I, I like this idea. And, of course, this is a nice reinforcement of the fact that we've got to preserve the local. We've got to think locally and act locally. It's the only way forward. Decentralization is the only way to preserve these things. Left and right, by the way. This is for lefties to maintain their little utopias, too. They can have these things, too. It's not just on the right. It's on the left, too. It's how we do it. See you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <laughs>